Matthew 15, verse 29. And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh into the Sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down. That means they, they, they came quickly and put them there before the Lord. Cast them down at Jesus' feet, and He healed them. Insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, and the blind to see. And they glorified the God of Israel. When Jesus called his, uh, then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude, because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I will not send them away fasting, lest they faint in the way. And his disciples say unto him, When shall we have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill so great a multitude? And Jesus saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? And they said, Seven, and a few little fishes. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and the fishes, and gave thanks, and brake them, and gave to his disciples, and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat, and were filled. That's what I've been doing this week, I tell you. It's been good too. <laughs> Let me get sidetracked here. All right, verse 37. And they did all eat and were filled, and they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets full. And they did to eat were 4,000 men beside women and children. So, I, I mean, you could easily assume there were 12,000. Easy. But we don't know. 4,000 men beside women and children. And he sent away the multitude and took ship and came into the coast of Magdala. So I've titled the message tonight, Christ Ministry to the Multitudes. Let's pray. Lord, how we do. Thank you for the privilege of being here tonight. Thank that we can meet in a dry place and be comfortable, have the Word of God, be able to put everything else aside and have the God of heaven and earth speak to us individually, personally, powerfully. And Lord, we ask You to do that. Give us ears to hear, give us receptive hearts, help us to receive the Word with meekness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage gives record of Jesus' life during a time in which He was facing a lot of the same type of opposition that we're beginning to see in the United States today, the Christians face. Here's a guy that had worked as a carpenter in a rough town. You know, they said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? It was a rough place to live. They tried to kill him the first time he went back and preached there. But he'd grown up there as a carpenter. 
He supported his mom and his younger siblings. And though he had been a law-abiding citizen, and though he had by this time gone over a lot of Israel preaching the Word of God, though he had healed hundreds if not thousands of people with genuine sicknesses, physical needs and so forth, in spite of all this, Jesus was facing a, a, a more and more militant opposition from Israel's most powerful religious leaders. Let's just look at these. Go, go back to chapter 12 and just let's see how this is building. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1 says, That time Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, that's wheat, grain, and his disciples were hungered and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day. He's just getting a handful of grain to eat, and it's, it's wrong. Verse 14, Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. That was bad too. And charged them that they should not make him known. He couldn't do that. Look at verse 22, Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him. Man, that's terrible insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub the prince of devils. Chapter 13, over in verse 54. And when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. And then chapter 15, verse 1. Then came Jesus, came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. Now, because of this opposition, at this particular point in Jesus' ministry, he left Galilee. We got our map here of Israel. Mediterranean Sea, Jerusalem's down here at the bottom. Galilee's this area up here, and the Sea of Galilee is in the middle of it. So he'd been preaching on the western side of Galilee, and now he goes up out of really the sort of the nation of Israel uh, to an area called Phoenicia, which is where uh, Tyre and Sidon were. If you look at chapter 15, verse 21, it says, Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. So um, kind of got out of the left Galilee at least. And after ministering there some, primarily to the apostles that were with him, he um, came back down south 
into Israel, but instead of going on the region of Galilee on the western side, he comes back around on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and um, he's he's trying to escape all this opposition. All the, you know, everything he's doing is being questioned, criticized, and so forth. And he came on this eastern side where there was a large population of Greek-speaking Gentiles. It's called Decapolis. That means ten cities. So he, he comes around on that side and he's ministering. Now, in chapter 15, verse 29 then, we see this, And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh into the Sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came unto him. Now, what we're going to see here a little bit in these verses here is that no Christian alive today, nowhere, not in the United States, not in Brazil, not on California where they're having the big movement. My wife's telling about it at supper. Nobody, no Christian alive today has ever seen or ever will see the type of ministry that Jesus performed in this three-and-a-half-year ministry in Israel. Jesus was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy as the Messiah, the son of David, you know, the one who was the descendant of Abraham and so forth. And according to God's promised plan, Jesus, the son of God, came to the Jew first. He came to evangelize them, to give them the opportunity to believe and be saved. His miracles were not, and I'm going to be careful about this, but they were not primarily good works. They were primarily proofs to the Jews that he was the Messiah. They were He was fulfilling these promises that Isaiah and all of them had um, that about a Messiah who would come and, you know, who would um, minister. And that so his performing these miracles was proof that he would in the future, still yet in the future, uh, establish an earthly kingdom. And a thousand-year reign and then an eternal kingdom. And so during his incarnate ministry on earth, Jesus lived a sinless life, and then he died on the cross to pay for our sins, to make an atonement for our sins. He rose bodily from the dead, and he ascended to heaven, sits on the right hand of his Father, where he will be until the rapture takes place. And really, his full return is when he comes in glory after that and establishes that kingdom on earth. Now, he's still the creator now. He's still the almighty. He's still the I am, as Pastor uh, Byler mentioned before the service. He controlled everything that exists. In fact, he holds it all together. He's uh, what holds the protons and the neutrons and all that. By him, all things consist. That's the reason the tides work the way they do. That's why why the moon's in its orbit. That's why all these things work the way they do, because he's holding it all together. Uh, And he's not limited in anything that he wants to do except by his perfect will. There's nothing that can resist him. But Jesus is not now proving his deity on earth to the Jews. He's kind of set them aside. Thank the Lord that Jews still can be saved, but he's not working through the nation of Israel at this time. 
Uh, he's calling out of people for himself, people who will repent, people who will believe, people who will follow him as their Lord and Savior. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, who redeemed us. See, I got to get some help. Help me out, brother. Bro. Purified himself, a peculiar people, zealous of good works. That's what he's doing. That's really the plan and the ministry of all about the Lord Jesus. And though we do not today in America see the amazing miracles that are recorded right here, this passage reveals to us really the character of Jesus' ministry and the nature, the divine nature of our God. It's already been referenced tonight, Hebrews 13, 8. 8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. That has never changed. He's still Almighty God. He's still the Savior, still the Creator. And the character that's revealed in our passage is really far more important than physical miracles. So I point this out in the nursing homes all the time. I say, what happened to all the people that Jesus raised from the dead when he was ministering? Bethany? They all died. You get that? People get all excited about these miracles. Feeding 5,000, that's a big deal. <laughs> Raising somebody from the dead. That's wonderful, but everyone that he raised from the dead is in the grave now and turned to dust. And so physical miracles, are they have an important role, but they're not, that, they're not the big thing in Christianity. What we see here, though, is Jesus alone. Jesus alone has the power to heal the soul and to satisfy our deepest needs and He will not send away anyone who comes to Him in truth. He'll not turn them away. Not turn us away. And so I want to look at two simple things tonight. First of all, the satisfaction of salvation. And secondly, the promise of the Savior. Alright? Two things under the satisfaction of salvation. We see demonstrated the healing of the soul. In verse 30, it says, And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them, insomuch that the multitude wondered, that is, they marveled, they were astounded, when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, the blind to see, and that they glorified the God of Israel. Now, Jesus, back in chapter 9, had once told a man that his sins were forgiven. I believe he was a cripple. He couldn't walk. And the Pharisees got upset about that, and they said that Jesus blasphemed. And knowing what they're thinking, Jesus said, well, is that a big deal? Take up your bed and walk. So he had, 
they were upset because he was claiming to be able to forgive sins, but he's saying, you know what, if, if I can just speak a word and a guy can be, can be completely healed physically, that's proof I have power to forgive sins. And that's part of the reason for he performed this. That's Matthew chapter 9. Jesus' point is this, if he can heal a body with the word, he can heal the soul. Look at the nature of those healings here in verse 31 in our chapter. Insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak. Somebody who's not able to speak. The maimed to be whole. The lame to walk. And the blind to see. And they glorified the God of Israel. Now all of these words could be, and they are used at times to refer to the terrible crippling power of, of sin the destruction that sin causes in our lives. People are spiritually blind. People are morally maimed. They are not able to recover and so forth. Uh, the medical field can't help them. Psychology can't help them. Education cannot help them. Drugs or religion cannot help them. Well, when Kathy and I lived in Carver, we had a, a man that was um, professor in, U, uh, in biology at UNC. He'd been there a long time. He did research. He didn't even teach anymore. But he had married a, a, a woman that was, had, had been a student one time. She was quite a bit younger than him, and she'd gotten her medical degree. And over the years, I had an opportunity to witness to him a number of times. I don't know that, would you say, I don't know if he's an atheist or not, but he didn't believe. He'd been exposed to all that. But one time... He invited me over, and I was asking some questions about cloning and that type of thing. And he asked, he said, wait a minute. He got his wife in there, and I, we started talking about creation and all that. He said, she's never heard any of this before. She was from Taiwan. Well, then later, when I went back at their house sometime later, she had, been, she had finished up her medical degree, and she was working in some kind of rehab facility. And she just said, how do you do it? I said, what are you talking about? She said, we never see anybody helped. Oh, they may get off drugs for a little bit of time, but they always go right back. They're, they're doing this or they're doing that. He said, she said, this is the most depressing thing I've ever seen in my life. And she wanted to know, <laughs> why would anybody go into Christian ministry trying to help people like this when there was... Absolutely no success in helping them. Well, the medical field can't help them. And you think about people in the Bible, though, the contrast with what she was seeing. Think about people like Rahab. Everybody knows Rahab the harlot. You know, I have to wonder, did her grandchildren call her that, Rahab the harlot? I don't think so. Because she never was again. Or Ruth, you know, a, a pagan woman who meets and marries a carnal Jew, at, at the, at probably at the best, but who is transformed by hearing about their Savior and becomes such a, a wonderful, godly woman in the Bible and becomes, you know, her great-great-grandson great or whatever it was David. Think about the demoniac of Gadara. 
actually two guys, running around naked, cutting themselves with stones, knives and whatever else, living in the tombs, attacking and chasing people and accost them, and, and they had chained them, and they broke loose from that. How about Paul? This is a guy, you talk about a wicked religious person who is rejoicing at being there to help stone stone Stephen and who sees the Lord and whose life is so totally changed, completely changed, that he's still regarded as the greatest missionary that's ever lived. We're talking about real, definite, lasting change in people's lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, that's homosexuals, and even got another term for homosexuals, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. That's a good past tense right there. You were, but you're not anymore. You're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Man, it doesn't matter how badly you have defiled yourself or how badly someone else has defiled you or what you have done to somebody. It doesn't matter. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 2, the Bible says, Behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, Thou canst make me clean. And he said, I will be thou clean. And leprosy, the, the Bible talks about, you know, some of the leprosy in the Bible is probably something similar to dandruff. But the bad cases of leprosy are where here are people that are alive and their body is actually dying. So that if they hit their hand in the later stages, a finger may just fall off because it's it's dead. A leper. Spiritual leper. Physical leper. In Luke chapter 8, verse 35, when they went out to see what was done and came to Jesus and found the man out of whom the devils were departed, that could, could be that he had up to 600 demons in him. And he's sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And that scared the daylights out of those people. So they were afraid. They'd seen him and they'd been hiding from him and they were trying to chain him down. But what scared him more was when this guy is... I was going to say he was normal. But he's not normal. He's been redeemed now. He's totally changed. Hebrews chapter 7, 25, verse 25. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, 
seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. So the satisfaction of salvation has to do with the healing of the soul. Being changed, being healed. Going from being a leper to somebody whose flesh is like a young person's. Things like this. Healing of the soul. One of the reasons, I, you know, I didn't have a lot of teaching when I first got saved, but I knew this. When you go from being somebody who's out of, got an out-of-control temper, who becomes kind of bored because they don't you know, go from one extreme to another, that's a change. And when your mouth is, of course, not, not at home, not around my parents, not around the teacher, but the rest of the time is filthy. And when you're moody and all that kind of thing, and you change immediately... That was proof enough to me that I was saved. I mean, I knew I was saved. Healing in the soul. But this passage also says that part of the salvation, of, uh, the satisfaction of salvation is not just the healing of the soul, but the feeding of the soul. In verse 35, it says, And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and the fishes, and gave thanks, and brake them, and gave to his disciples, and the disciples to the multitude, and they did all eat, and were filled, and they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets full. And they did eat were four thousand men beside women and children. Now this is the second time that Jesus performed that we have recorded in the Bible, second time that Jesus performed a miracle like this. The first time it says there were five thousand people. Again, we don't really know how many this is. But Jesus just had seven loaves of bread and a few small fishes for uh, 4,000 men. Now, if that's, all that, that's all that, if that's all there were, that means per loaf of bread, 5,701.4 men ate from one loaf of bread. And not only that, there's seven baskets full of bread and fish left over. But the greater truth here is that Jesus is the only one. He's the only one that can feed and satisfy all the needs of your soul. I think it was last night I said, every period of my life since I've been saved has been more what did I say? Satisfying? I don't know, something like that. It's been better because He continues to change and work on me and the fruit of what He's doing has done in my life has just made it all better. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. A yoke's not a good thing to have on your shoulders. That's, that's something that rubs you. That's hard. That makes you work, but not with the Lord Jesus. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 3, the Bible says this, 
Commit thy works unto the Lord, and thy thoughts shall be established. I just commit myself to doing the Lord's will in salvation. He's going to clear up my, my thoughts and my mind. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. You know, a note there. The God of all comfort. That seems to be saying to me that you really, you can't get comfort anywhere else. He's the God of all comfort. If it's genuine lasting comfort, it has to come from God. Philippians 4.19, But my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Uh, John 10.28, And I give them the eternal life, and they shall never perish. And so the Lord Jesus can feed our souls. In John 6, verse 35, Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. The Bible says we have to, we come in faith, we, we have to believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. So simple and so basic. And so we have the satisfaction of salvation. It heals the soul. We're being changed. One day we'll be glorified. That'll be wonderful. But He feeds us now and supplies the deep needs of our souls. So the satisfaction of salvation. But this passage also illustrates demonstrates the promise of the Savior. And there are two of those I want us to note. The first promise is His pity. In verse 29, it says, And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh into the Sea of Galilee, and went up into a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came unto Him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and He healed them. Verse 32, Then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. Now, I know Jesus lived a, a normal human life as much as normal can be when you're not sinning. And it's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? A normal human life. Here he is in his early 30s. Anybody here in their early 30s? Okay. As far as we know, Jesus was healthy all of his life. He worked as a, a carpenter, we know. Now, he's got all these demands on him. He's busy. He's constantly helping people and so forth. He's young and he's tired. Ministering to people is, I know working on a machine is tiring, but trying to help people is a whole lot more tiring. You may get mad at a machine, but your heart doesn't go out. It doesn't take your soul. At least I hope not. <laughs> So here he is, young, healthy, all this, busy, 
tired. And he said, I'm not going to send them away hungry. How many young men who are healthy and busy and in demand and tired would care about whether anybody else was hungry? You know? He had never been blind. He had never been maimed. He had never experienced those type of troubles in his body. But it says that he had compassion on him. The Greek is a long Greek word. It, it has the idea of uh, it's, it's a pain in your gut. That's, that's basically what it is. He had compassion. It really bothered him, troubled him. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says this, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. You just go ahead and fix in your mind. Somebody ask how you're doing. They're just, they're just making conversation. Most of the time they really don't care unless they're your mama or something like that, you know. But not Jesus. He knew and does know everything about what we experience in life, all the pains, all the trials. And yet people wonder, is there a God out there? Is he good? Does he care for me? Well, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 29. Let me look at that turn there. Matthew 10. <laughs> you know, we read these things over and over and a lot of times don't even really think about what they're saying. Matthew 10 verse 29. Here's the answer. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. I mean, you can just go walking out here somewhere and you'll see a little bird laying dead. God knows about every single one of them. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. I know it's easy to make a joke about that. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. He paid the great price to relieve our guilt. He paid the great price to relieve our suffering. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. John chapter 6, verse 37 says, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me, I will in no wise. We talked about last, I think it was last night, the double negative. I, there's absolutely no way that he would cast somebody out that comes to him. And so the promise of the Savior is he pities us. He's never going to be harsh with us, reject us. Now, he did that Syrophoenician woman one time, but he was just testing her. And boy, she, she proved that she was coming to the Lord and believed in Him and trusted Him. But the second part of that promise is the power of the Savior. And again, look at verse, uh, back, back chapter 15, verse 30. It says, And great multitudes came unto Him, having with them those that were lame, Blind, dumb, 
maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, and the blind to see. And they glorified the God of Israel. And then in verse 33, And his disciples say unto him, Whence should we have so much bread in the wilderness so as to fill so great a multitude? We're out, we're out here. There are not any restaurants out here. There are not any stores out here. And Jesus saith unto them, How many loaves have you? And they said, Seven, and a few little fishes. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fishes and gave thanks and break them and gave to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up the broken meat that was left seven baskets full. And they that did eat were 4,000 men beside women and children. That seven baskets full, is, that's kind of like overkill, you know. All he had to do was feed the people there, but he didn't do that. He said, everybody, all right, everybody take some of this home. we got more than we can ha- take care of here. You know, the question might arise in our minds and hearts. If I go to him, will he be able to help me? Will he be able to help me? We got to answer that in our hymn book, right? He's able. He gives the answer in all throughout the scriptures. Isaiah 59, verse 1 Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. Genesis 18, 14, when, Jesus, when God was telling Abraham that his wife, who's 90 years old, is going to have a child, it says, is there anything too hard for the Lord? At that time upon at the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Jeremiah thirty two verse seventeen. Ah Lord God, thou behold thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Jesus healed the physical bodies. Jesus raised the dead to prove to us that He can save us from sin, that He can save us from hell, that He can bring us to eternal glory. I would recommend every Christian to memorize these two verses, Jude verse 24 and 25. Now unto Him that is able to keep you from falling, that's good, and to present you faultless, not with scars and wounds and still limping, but to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty and dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. And this is the testimony of Scripture. This is the testimony of people who know the Lord. We have an almighty Savior who is a savior to all who repent and believe. That's all we have to do. We make up our minds. 
we change our minds about the way that we're living and the way what we want to do and what we want to be, and we turn to Him in faith. The greatest miracle of all is salvation. It's deliverance. It's not just stopping the the bad from getting worse. That would be a great thing, wouldn't it? What if when you were just a young person, and you might have told a fib here and there or something like that, if it just stopped right there, that would be a tremendous thing. But He's not just stopping us in the condition we're in. He is going to glorify us. And that work starts the minute that we get saved. This is the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, if you're not lost, never have been, He's not for you. But if you have been in that condition and you still have troubles and struggle with sin and so forth, He's the one you need.